basically, it's very simple. Um, that the path to awakening in the Buddhist, in all the Buddhist traditions, really, uh, is awareness. There are many ways, many techniques of developing awareness. But that's what it all comes down to. Even in Burma, uh, there are over 50 different techniques of Vipassana. You know, so it's, you, can, you can develop the awareness by focusing just on the body, just on body sensations, just on body postures, on the different qualities of mind. There are many, many different ways. Um, and I think that you'll find as you look in other Buddhist traditions as well, like Tibetan or Zen or... Uh, and in some way even devotional practices, at the heart of it all is awareness. You know, in some way I often think of uh, the simplicity of this practice being reflected in the understanding that in any moment we're either in awareness or unawareness. Those are the two choices. And what we're practicing is to string together moments of awareness. Now maybe after three months you've seen that it's actually possible to have two or three in a row. <laughs> The famous verse in the teachings is all conditioned things are impermanent, all conditioned things are dukkha or unsatisfying, all conditioned, all dhammas are anatta, are selfless. And that difference is so that it includes the unconditioned as well as the conditioned, that both are selfless. So when we say all conditioned things are dukkha, it's really an aspect or a an implication, a consequence, of everything being impermanent. All conditioned things are impermanent, are changing, and we can see that, you know, and you've just spent the last months noticing that over and over and over again, that whatever it is that arises also passes away. Given that, given the truth of that, we see that there's nothing reliable. We can't rely on any conditioned thing to bring about a fulfillment, a completion. The Dhamma is so elegantly simple. You know, it's not easy to retrain our minds. Sometimes I think that some of the greatest insights that we have on retreat is precisely to see how much our mind wanders. 
you know, because it really gives us a good understanding of the world. The Buddha, the Buddha would often say the world is to be found within this fathom long body. I'm not quite sure how long a fathom is. But <laughs> <laughs> and we can see it. You know, we can just see the whole world being created in the workings of our own minds. Of all the thought proliferation, all the concepts, all the ideas, and the degree to which we get lost in them, get identified with them, act them out. That's the world. That's why there's so much suffering in the world. And to see, just to, to even glimpse the possibility that there is another way. That there's another kind of understanding which is not bound, which is not caught up in this proliferation of mind. Even if we just have a glimpse of that possibility, that glimpse is a tremendous transformation of our lives. Because most people who have not taken time to pay attention to the workings of their minds don't know that there's another possibility. You know, and that's, that's really like being imprisoned. So even when we get caught, you know, we're hopelessly caught in whatever, still that there's, there's that place of wisdom in all of us that knows there is another way here. We may have lost it temporarily, but we know. So that's a very great thing. On the surface of the question, it would seem so, uh, because awareness leads to understanding. It leads to the understanding of how things are. But one also really can only understand a tradition from doing it. It's very hard to assess in any way, really, what's going on from a practice from the outside. You know, and often. You may not have noticed this with reference to spiritual traditions, but you've probably noticed very clearly the tremendous tendency to judge. You know, we have judgments about everything. It often gets translated, you know, for those who are interested in that domain, into judgment of di different spiritual traditions. But unless we've done a practice, we don't really know. You know and so. That's one judgment that we could well let go of. You know, I think that uh, the real question for you is uh, 
to get more and more precise through your un own understanding of what it is that you mean by soul. Like soul is just a word. It's a word that many people use without a very clear un sense for themselves of what actually they mean by it. Uh, so that would be the first step, I think. You know, and, and the great beauty of the Abhidhamma is that it is extremely precise. You know, it really defines terms very carefully. It could well be that either some or all of what you mean by soul could be talked about in other terms. And that you, because of kind of the Western conditioning, you're choosing to use that word. It could be that you're using that word to mean something that really does not have an equivalent. As an example, it's if there's a sense of soul as being some unchanging, I don't know, unchanging spiritual entity residing inside, I think that would not be in accordance with the Buddhist teaching. If you use it to mean the process, or the, the continuity of awareness, the continuity of the process. Well, I think that does have a, there is an equivalent there, because you're not postulating some, something unchanging to which or to what, to whom, <laughs> everything is happening. Right, but I'm also talking about continuity moment to moment, second to second, that sense of process. Um, you can't go wrong if you hold to the basic It's a little paradoxical. <laughs> if you hold to the basic truth, hold on to nothing. <laughs> I mean, it really does kind of just cut through it all because everything else, or I mean, a lot of this domain of questioning is, is interesting and it can point or can support a careful and precise investigation. So in that sense, it's useful. But it's helpful to remember, it's still only words. And we don't want to get caught by words. The question was the difference between the kind of thought that just pops into your mind 
and the kind of train of thought that we get lost in. I think it very much has to do with, uh, at least in part, the difference uh, between the level of identification with it. I mean, they all begin as a thought that just pops into the mind, unless we're sitting down and choosing consciously to think about something. Uh, but, it, but if we're not even the train of association, start with a thought that just has popped into the mind, then it's a question of how mindful we are on the one side or how identified we are. Generally, the more identified we, we are, it leads to a whole train of association. And when we're mindful, the thought self-liberates. The thing that, that continually amazes me you know, in the practice is how much power thoughts have when we're not aware of them and how empty they are when we are aware of them. I mean, it's... To appreciate the power of awareness, it's right there. You know, because so much of our lives is simply acting out unnoticed thoughts. It's most of what we do. And yet, when we pay attention, they're nothing. I think that's a wise reflection. <laughs> I do, it's just like that. I mean, where, the last moment, where is it? You know, that line I mentioned earlier in the retreat, if the past and future really exist, where are they? They exist in our thoughts. It's continually falling away. But there's a next step to that. Reflecting on that is really not enough, although it's a wise reflection. Given the fact that moment after moment, things are disappearing. What's the implication of that for your life? You know, the practice, and it's really the practice of the retreat which is coming up tomorrow, uh, how, do, how do we live our wisdom? It's not enough simply to have learned some things about the nature of our minds, our bodies, the nature of reality. And that's the indispensable foundation. But then the question is, how do we live it? And there is a very profound implication in the fact that things are disappearing moment after moment. Start thinking about something. <laughs> uh, 
You could say that. I mean, that, that thought... Uh, although there may not be a conscious intention to have that first decision to arise, still all thoughts are conditioned by something. You know, so it's not... To say that they arise unintentionally doesn't mean that there aren't conditions somewhere, somehow, that are causing that thought to arise. You know, it might be an association, it might be a memory, it might be whatever. Okay, last question. You know, the decision of whether to, how much food to take is just so related to this wanting the food versus a consideration for the other people in the line to follow. And it happens so quickly. And what is the difference between a spontaneous generosity and just acting out these sort of habitual thought patterns that arise? There are two different questions in there. I'm not sure my mind can sort them out right now. But one of the questions really has to do, and this is, this is a, critical, a critical piece. Um, awareness, having awareness in a moment, gives you the space to bring in some wise discrimination, wise choice. So you're on the food line, you see that impulse of desire, of greed, of wanting more. Right in the moment of that arising, if there's awareness, you have a choice. Do I act on this? Do I let this one go? You know, which then opens up the possibility for other factors of mind to come into play, like generosity, like concern, like caring. So it's all, again, it's all rooted in awareness. Often what we call spontaneous or unspontaneous whatever the opposite is, unspontaneous. Uh, there is an Abhidhamma, an interesting Abhidhamma, uh, explanation of it in terms of prompted and unprompted consciousness. And that, as I understand it, Steve can elaborate if it's wrong, <laughs> is that prompted consciousness is that which is not yet well-developed and so it needs prompting to come into play. And it can either be wholesome or unwholesome. So what we're calling spontaneous uh, is really the unprompted consciousness that comes quite spontaneously because it has been well developed. So then the task for us, what kinds of consciousness do we want to develop to that point of spontaneity? We can only do that if we're aware and we begin to make conscious choices. Then the generous impulse becomes well-practiced. And so that becomes the first thought, rather than, you know, I want more tofu. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
As I'm sure you are very well aware of, <laughs> this is the last day of silence. Please enjoy it. You know, you'll be looking back fondly <laughs> on the silence. Uh, so even if you know you do choose maybe to go out for a more relaxed walk or whatever, really keep the silence. Keep your practice uh, going today in a respectful way for yourself and for all others. Uh, tomorrow morning at the 8 o'clock sitting, there'll be a, a manager's, little manager's talk at the beginning, and then we'll kind of have a breaking the silence circle uh, at 9 or 9.15. And we'll talk more about the, the days coming up at that time. Have a nice day. This time in retreat, someone asked you in a written question, where is the abdomen? <laughs> you laughed in your good-natured way, said, said the question was a bit late. <laughs> and, and proceeded to address it. Um, I have a couple of questions that may be Similarly tardy, <laughs> but um, the there's a certain desperation that comes last few days of the retreat. <laughs> makes me swallow my pride. Um, the question, two questions about planning and thinking while engaged in the physical activity. Um, and these may have been addressed thoroughly before I came to the retreat, but I want to know. <laughs> um, this morning, two, two examples. Um, early this morning, while I was pulling up the cover on my bed and trying to note that, I thought of um, a schedule conflict that would come up this weekend after I leave the retreat. And I thought of a plan to deal with that. Then a few minutes later, and I don't remember what I was doing, but I was doing something physical that I was trying, trying to be mindful of. I realized I would probably be late to my morning yogi job because of the scheduled conflict here today. And thought of a note to write on the board to try to address the situation. Um, while I was pulling up the cover on my bed, I couldn't have been mindful of that while I was thinking about this very real schedule conflict this weekend. And whatever I was doing when I decided to write the note about my yogi job also had to be pulled out of the moment. Um, so the first question is... What to do? Again, how I put the, qu the question to myself earlier, but to be fully mindful um, would seem like you couldn't make any plans. Uh, no, I think that... To be fully it, mindful while, while you're doing something physical. Right. Um, I think it's not so much of a problem. Really, the, the guideline in Vipassana is to be with what's predominant. Because there are always a lot of possible 
objects of attention. The physical movement or activity we're doing being just one of many. Often we give emphasis to it because it very often is the most obvious. You know? And so it's an easy, it's an easy uh, arena in which to practice mindfulness. But there are many times as we're doing things that something else comes up in the mind that takes precedence for whatever reason, either because it's very strong or it seems like it's important to attend to it. So at that time, the mindfulness simply turns to the awareness of that plan, of that consideration, in which case the physical activity recedes to the background. The real question is whether you're lost in the planning or you're aware of the planning. That's where the crux of the mindfulness lay, lie. <laughs> That's where my second question comes in, because and this is tricky to me. To me, um, it's a, It seems you. It seems like a useful, almost a, form, a skillful means to repeat sometimes a plan to get it into short into short term memory. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't just think of these two things once this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think... In the space of a few minutes, or a half an hour, or one, 20, 10 minutes, I thought of it many times. Okay. Before I did one, before I got the other right. one, to make sure I take care of this weekend. Right. Again, I think it's a question of how aware you are that that's what's happening in the moment, not how many times it happens. You know, so it's really... It comes, it comes back to a great simplicity in terms of this is the phenomena that's happening. The planning, the reflection. Are you caught up and identified and lost in it? Or is that happening in the space of awareness? If you're aware that it's happening, the breath happens a lot of times. Right? That, that doesn't make it less an object of attention. I think that what we need to watch out for with our minds is the when we when we're not resting in awareness there is a tendency to have these tape loops go on over and over and over again where it's not serving any purpose now it's not so that we remember it or it's not to uh, consider it more carefully it's just basically being in delusion right? it's a loop that's happened and we're not aware, so it keeps passing through. So I think it really has to do with how mindful you are of those thoughts arising, and that's, that's all. You need not do anything more about it. And the fact that it is arising is fine. And important, I mean, we need to, these thoughts need to come up if we're to engage in life. The metaphor of the pond with the weeds in it last night. Sila parts the weeds, concentration serves, isolates a little plot, as long as you maintain the fence. Uh, mindfulness practice, practice pulls out the weeds. You didn't finish. You can tell you're enlightened, second stage enlightenment, and cut the roots, they keep coming back, it's actually pulling out. Is that correct? I mean, just 
It's, I think it's a question of, I mean, we may be mixing metaphors here, but to, uh, through the power of mindfulness, the kalesas are weakened. Yeah. So we're substituting, we're reconditioning mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But actually, ultimately, you want to get that B out of the jar to the Swiss metaphor. And, and not do it, can get rid of all conditioning, good or bad or whatever. So, so I think you um, be reborn in higher karmic ground. Right. So, right. <laughs> That's a good idea. No, I think that's a, it's a reasonable question. Uh, there are really uh, two levels of mindfulness. Uh, one level is this very microscopic moment-to-moment -moment awareness in which we're really noticing how things are arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. And a lot of the practice is the development of that level of refinement. That's like looking at this through a high power microscope. And so the whole notion of Bell would disappear and we'd see another whole level of reality. But we could also be mindful of this as a Bell. It's a more general kind of mindfulness rather than the microscopic level. When we're engaged in something that requires the level of conceptual thinking, analysis. At that time, we need to keep a general mindfulness. If, you, if you're reading a book and you have this microscopic moment, all you're going to start seeing is black and white. And then even that's going to start doing strange things. Yeah. But if there's a general mindfulness, and this is really an important concept. It means we enter into the conceptual level. But there is enough awareness present so that if within that level something unwholesome arises, it's like the mindfulness is right there. Well, I don't really know the mechanics of it. I mean, that's one thing that could happen. You could be going in and out of the conceptual realm very quickly. But my experience is, and I don't, I don't know the Abhidhamma explanation for this, but that there is a way 
of thinking something out or of reading a book or of watching a movie, whatever, where we're not necessarily popping in and out, but there's just a level of awareness that has been developed so that as we're in this realm or in this level, if there's moments of anger, if there's moments of greed, if there's moments of desire, if there's moments of fear, whatever, if there's some unwholesome quality that arises, we're right there with it. So again, I don't know the actual mechanism of that, but it, it definitely is the protective quality of mindfulness. And it's important, because we do need to, as I say, engage in the world on many levels. comes back to you. I think it can take many forms, but it's not just one form. What your friend suggested is something that, that you might do. Uh, there's, there's a value and a danger in that. Uh, the value is that sometimes these emotions are rooted in, or often rooted in past events, and that the first sign we have of them is some strong uh, feeling in the present, feeling in the mind, feeling in the body. And perhaps for some people, by asking the question, you know, what is this, it could happen that an image arises of some past story. And in the seeing of it and the opening to it, the whole thing could release. The danger is, the danger in that is that it might not happen that way. And if, you know, we have a strong attachment uh, and it doesn't happen in quite that way, so then there's another struggle again. Uh, another way of being with it is not, not so much looking for 
the image which will release or open the past story, but actually to be with it on the level of the physical sensation, the actual contraction that we're feeling, and coming to that place of being com completely open or accepting of that. And very often the relaxation behind that contraction is what will release the whole energy. And there may not be any content involved at all. Remember the Goldstein law of practice? If it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, it really doesn't matter. And I think that this is a, actually an important insight because to practice with an agenda, I'm watching this in order for it to release, again makes freedom conditional. And my mind can only be free when this goes. That's not freedom. Freedom is a way of relating to whatever may be there. I mean, that's a, that's a major shift. And we get caught again and again in the agenda mentality. And so often I've sat, you know, and there would be, the body would be open and flowing and all of that, and there'd be one little knot someplace. And it's hard to be with it without the thought, oh, if only I could release this. But that's a kind of aversion, which actually is reinforcing the sense of self, reinforcing the sense of I, overlooking the essential emptiness of all phenomena. And that, that's, it's fairly easy to understand in the physical sense, but it's the, same, it's the same principle in terms of our mental world, our emotional world. That's why the, perhaps my favorite mantra is, it's okay. Whatever it is, it's okay, it's okay, let it be there. Because the problem is our identification with it. That's where the suffering comes, not from the thing itself. The feeling of the balloon, the intensity of it, can you ever take it too far? Is there any danger? Just the heat and the intensity of it. Right. Uh, using the image of the balloon, you know, getting blown up and sort of the intensity, is there ever a danger of taking it too far? I think that, again, the question is not so much the intensity, but the question of our balance behind it. If we're losing balance at whatever level, you know, because we will experience things as intense, different of us will experience that at different levels. So what may be very intense for you may not be intense for somebody else or way over the line. So each one of us has to in a way, monitor the quality of our balance with whatever experience it is that we're feeling as intense and really getting to an edge. Can we be with it? Can we relax behind it? Can we be open with it? Or is it overwhelming? Is the mind getting out of balance? 
If it is, then it might be helpful to withdraw a little bit, to regain the balance, and to again open. Okay, um, I think Joe from the office has a few managerial announcements. And then, uh, take Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda. Now we will count to 12, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers and sisters in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet, and I will go. We listen to ourselves talk about an experience like we've had for three months. And maybe not so much what it is we actually say, but the power and the intensity behind it. And we could be talking about anything, you know, any experience in the sitting or walking or, or whatever. And we can hear in our tone. or in talking with other people, in listening to others, you may notice that what you get from their message is more their level of 
understanding, attachment, aversion, confusion, than the, the experience itself. And you can, you can really see that um, if we're talking very excitedly about something, we probably got some attachment. And if we're talking very, then we probably got some aversion. And I mean, and we'll probably try to take pride and probably take shame in some of our experience and we'll be embarrassed and we'll try for a little one-ups womanship and one-upsmanship. And, you know, we try like crazy to make something valuable out of what we did, you know, and to put the most positive spin on this horrible experience. <laughs> 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 you know? <laughs> We learn a lot from those guys in Washington. <laughs> in some way, it's good to tell all, because then you'll see where you're attached and what you take pride in and what you take, what you're afraid of and what you're afraid to expose about yourself to others, you know, all of that horribleness that you've discovered in yourself that you don't dare share to anybody except, you know, a teacher, an interview or something. We all, I, just, just so there's no secrets, we've all had a horrible time here. I mean, it's been, and so if you've been listening to people put this wonderful spin on it, go back and ask them for the flip side. I'm kidding. It's really... I don't know. I don't have anything to say. <laughs> protecting the Dharma and protecting your own understanding and furthering your understanding of the Dharma and how other traditions and other teachers and teachings um, may affect um, in any of it. I think the most important thing is to understand and to be really honest with yourself what's your motivation. What's your motivation for getting and reading a book, for going to a speaker, going to practice with the same or a different tradition? And to really be honest with yourself. What, what is fueling, what's the source for the intention to do that? It can be fear. It can be doubt. It can be, you know, sincere spiritual yearning for understanding. Uh, it can be uh, acquiring credentials. It can be, you know, the very American uh, <coughs> shopping 
Uh, and it's very difficult to be honest with ourselves, really. Why am I doing it? Everybody else is doing it, so it must be a good thing to do. And that's, that's primary. I mean, to really look and see why, why are you doing it? And within that, anything is possible. There are, in, as you know, there are innumerable traditions and cross-fertilization from well-established traditions and psychotherapy traditions of every kind and, and physical traditions. I mean, it's just umpteen dozens, hundreds probably. And you need to evaluate for yourself. What's my level of understanding, really? And in the search or in the process of acquiring other teachings, does it tend to clarity and understanding, or does it tend to arousing greater doubt and confusion? And frankly, there, there's a period of time in practice when a wider exposure is not particularly helpful. Where it's just time to settle in and really sink your roots into a tradition. And I think all, I, I, this isn't much of a generalization, but I think all of the people that I know who have really seen to the depths of the Dharma have very strong and deep roots in a single tradition first. And then have gone and have seen the wisdom of other traditions teaching techniques or metaphors or whatever. But um, let's say it's difficult. It's difficult to wake up. And every tradition has their particular techniques for guiding one through each of those layers of difficulty. If we, on our path in a tradition, get to a place of difficulty, whether it's doubt or fear or confusion or whatever it is, and we stop and we just say, this isn't working for me, and we go to another tradition, of course there'll be different techniques, there'll be different teachers, there'll be different metaphors, and it seems like we're getting somewhere further. But I'll guarantee that you'll come up against that same difficulty in that tradition. It may take a while until you learn all the metaphors and you learn all the techniques, but you'll come up against that difficulty again, and it won't be any different. And you'll have to go through it, either there or through another tradition. And we can shop around going just that far, in innumerable traditions, filling up our life with teachers and teachings and excitement and travel and whatnot, and never progressing. That's why I say it's really important to understand your motivation, 
and really, you know, going blind, you know, going blind, going into the process, going into the tradition with some uh, extraordinary faith and confidence and going blind and, and being led through the difficulties. I mean, there, there are places, you know, on the path that it is essential to have a teacher that you have absolute faith in, confidence in. And without it, you're not going to get through that place. A rare, exceptional person, maybe. But in my experience, and this is generalizing again, I think that type of being is very rare. The one who can just hear and open. And for the most part, we have a lot of um, stuff in the way to opening, to the full impact of the open mind, the free mind. I, I, I personally, I'm very lucky, I think. I wandered into the first three-month retreat with Jack, Joseph, Sharon, and a fellow, Richard Barsky. And I've never done anything else but this tradition. It's just never had any curiosity or interest or need or doubt or just just didn't. I, I was really lucky in that sense. Didn't need it. Now I'm a little curious about some of the other teachings. But. <laughs> you know, it's like take it or leave it. I don't really. It's not a big deal. The energy of the mind. There's a lot of making effort in intensive practice. And at some point, when we stop making effort, we can feel the energy of the mind, mental energy, and the momentum of it, maintaining mindfulness. And I remember one time when I was first on staff here, um, back in the 70s, I went to an interview with Sharon, and I was telling her about my general practice as I was working around the center. And I said, you know, there's a couple times a day when I'm actually present with walking around the building. And she was astounded. She said, a couple times a day? You know, like, like that's ridiculous. And it was, but... <laughs> Without the sense now of making a lot of effort, there's a lot more moments of mindfulness just walking around the building. So, yeah, I, there's, there's more mindfulness without the striving of continually making effort, but there's always room for improvement. I mean, I still see lots of time when I'm not mindful, and with a little bit of remembering, I could be more mindful. The thing about mindfulness is, you can never get too much. There's always room for improvement. No matter how good it is, you can always be better. Or you can always up it a little bit more. And so, in that sense, there's no end. There's no end to. But we can see, we can notice the momentum of you know, mindful awareness uh, as we practice more. Yeah. Okay. 
We probably all have things to do. Enjoy your day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.